Patrick's voice began to rise in its urgency, causing the assembly to hang on every word. The distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. He paused and raised a fist of unity and victory in the air and exclaimed loudly and proudly, I am not a Virginian, but an American. Hear, hear! Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll hear Chapter 61 of The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, entitled A Voice Unified, as delegates from all over the colonies converge on the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And we'll hear a very interesting conversation between Patrick Henry and George Washington as they travel north together from Virginia. But did that conversation really happen? Well, on Jenny's Corner, we'll find out as she explains where all the dialogue came from as she gave voices to all these great founding fathers. Oh, and speaking of uh, voices, please welcome your very vocal hosts. First, this terrier is so Scottish, he eats haggis-flavored doggy treats and actually likes them. (laughs) Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. And what's wrong with that? (laughs) See? And next, a brilliant cat who's so French, she brings her groceries home in a paper baguette. <laughs> oh, c'est tragique. <laughs> Here's Lisette Briant Aloysius. And finally, this mouse is so British, he only drinks royal tea. <laughs> royal tea. <laughs> uh, Nigel P. Monaco. Oh, no, sir, lad. Them were bad, then. I say, who writes your material? <laughs> really, Nigel? Do you think they would actually admit it? <laughs> Surely you can be serious. Well, I am serious, but please, don't, don't call, call me Shirley. Shirley. Where, then? Have we got all of that out of our systems? Huh? I surely hope so. <laughs> I, I think we're done, then. Actually, I have sort of an affinity for Philadelphia. You see, when my family came to America, they first came to Philly. What happened? Did they get rejected by New York? Well, no, they did Oh, your family did not come over on the Mayflower? I am surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised he went on the Mayflower. How old do you think I am? <laughs> well, old chap, if you're counting in dog years, he may be spot on. No, see, my grandfather came over from Northern Ireland in the 1920s and first landed in Philadelphia. He flew a plane? Well, of course not. He said he landed. If he weren't flying a plane... What were you flying in, eh? Maybe a nonsense lad is an alien. Ah, well, that certainly would explain a lot. Uh, so your family came from Ireland, just like my Albert. Well, now that you mention it, he does sort of remind me of your Albert. He has an insatiable appetite, and he, uh, uh that is, uh, ah. Uh, and he aren't too bright. Oh, come on. 
Oui, uh, but he is not as lovable as Al. Uh, you know, I can still hear you. Really? At your age? <laughs> well done, lad. Oh, come on. Uh, well, uh, fret not, old boy. You say your ancestors are from Northern Ireland? Uh, right, around Belfast. Well, then, technically, they were British. Part of what we now call the United Kingdom, of course. Uh, so it seems that you and I have far more in common than you and Al. Oh, dear, what ever possessed me to say that. We, oui, Nigel, now that you mention it, uh, the resemblance is uncanny. Hey, <laughs> I can barely tell you apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, <laughs> I say, this is rather awkward. I seem to have put the old foot in the mouth, what? No, I, I, I think it's kind of cool that you and I have this thing, Cousin Nige. Oh, dear, perhaps this is just part of a bad dream. That's it. I'm going to wake up soon. Uh, perhaps you should read the chapter, monsieur, huh? Why, of course, Liz. And in fact, in honor of my cousin Nigel from England, I'll read it in English. Oh, dear. I say, I'm suddenly feeling a bit woozy. Chapter 61. A Voice Unified. Philadelphia, September 4th, 1774. So when Cato said, It is not now a time to talk of aught but chains or conquest, liberty or death, he was telling Juba that greater things were happening at the moment? Cato asked Nigel. Now was not the time to talk about love that the young man had for his daughter. Is that right? The eagle had asked the little mouse to recite the play Cato on their journey to Philadelphia. Patrick Henry and Edmund Pendleton had arrived at Mount Vernon the evening of August 30th and spent the night dining and discussing matters with George Washington and neighbor George Mason, who joined them. The next day after lunch, Martha Washington had sent the men off on their journey. I hope you will all stand firm. I know George will. Cato, with Nigel aboard, had followed Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Edmund Pendleton as they rode on horseback from Mount Vernon. It had taken four days to travel the 150 miles, and the men had stayed in taverns and inns along the way. Nigel had recited and explained the entire play Cato to the eagle, who had grown more thoughtful about the origin of his name. Precisely, dear boy, Nigel replied, scanning the green countryside of Pennsylvania. Cato thought for a moment, how long do you think we'll be in Philadelphia? I would imagine several weeks. Why? Nigel asked. Well, like Juba, I'm thinking about love, Nigel. Cato answered with a grin. I'd like to finally find a mate, build a nest, and have some eaglets. That is, if it would be okay with you. I would need to stay here for five months at least. Nigel wiggled his whiskers happily and patted Cato on the neck. My dear boy, this is glorious news. Of course, you should have a family here in the city of your birth, although I do not see the Congress meeting for five months. Why, that would be utterly preposterous. If the representatives cannot finish their business for the people in a matter of several weeks, then they clearly need to be replaced. Thank you, Nigel, Cato replied happily. I didn't want to let you or the team down. Liz said I'm to do something special for the Maker, so I don't want to let him down either. I don't want to be like Juba and talk about love if greater things are at hand. You shall not let anyone down, old chap. 
I am certain the Maker will let us know when greater things, such as liberty or death, spring up. You go find that special she-eagle and <laughs> build that nest. <laughs> Nigel gave a jolly chuckle. <laughs> I can always return to Virginia via pigeon, although I've become rather accustomed to flying first class, courtesy of your impressive wingspan. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with flying pigeon class, <laughs> Cato answered with a laugh. He scanned the ground below. What is happening down there? Will you just look at that grand reception for our merry trio of delegates? Why, it's still six miles until they enter Philadelphia, Nigel enthused, surveying the road below. Looks like the people are excited to see the Virginians' arrival, Cato answered with a smile. Someone must have told them Patrick Henry and George Washington were coming. Suddenly Nigel spotted a distinguished gentleman in the middle of the crowd, wearing a magnificent red cloak. A black Scotty dog was at his side, wagging his tail. I believe I know exactly who that was, Nigel waved at Gilliman and Max. Gilliman held out his arms and bowed in welcome as he smiled up at them. Looks like delegates from other colonies are arriving, too, Cato added, spotting other men on horseback, shaking the hand of Edmund Pendleton. They were men from North Carolina, Maryland, and Delaware. This is exciting to see, Nigel. More than 500 people lined the streets, cheering the men who would make up the First Continental Congress. A band of fifes and drums played music. Philadelphia riflemen and infantrymen stood at attention, and gentlemen on horseback tipped their hats respectfully to Colonel Washington, hero of the French and Indian War. The people shouted huzzas for the man whose Stamp Act resolves had first set the colonies ablaze in defiance of British tyranny and gave rise to the Sons of Liberty, Patrick Henry. Patrick and George exchanged surprised looks, and a broad smile appeared on Patrick's face as something dawned on him. Please keep this between us, Colonel, but I just realized that you and I are in quite the exclusive club. George Washington lifted a hand in greeting to some soldiers and turned with a puzzled look toward Patrick. What do you mean, Mr. Henry? Well, technically, you started the French and Indian War, did you not? Patrick asked, waving at some cheering patriots as Ms. P. clip-clopped along. She winked at Max as they passed, but Patrick didn't see Max or Mr. Gilliman. Technically, yes, George replied with a frown followed by a growing realization coming to his mind. Not that I desired war. And if this emerging revolution leads to war, as I certainly believe it will, Patrick started to say, then you will have technically started a war with your Stamp Act resolves, a revolutionary war, George interjected. He gave an uncharacteristic, singular laugh. <laughs> an exclusive club indeed, Mr. Henry. Patrick nodded. Not that I desire war either, Colonel, but that precious jewel of liberty is worth fighting for. That it is, Mr. Henry, George Washington replied. That it is. While Nigel and Cato soared above and Gilliman and Max cheered below, the delegates were escorted into Philadelphia and to the finest establishment in America, the City Tavern. With its large club rooms and 50-foot-long dining room, 
The city tavern quickly became the gathering place for the 56 delegates, assembling from every colony except Georgia. Georgia was seeking assistance from the British with the Indian problem out on its frontier and opted not to attend the Congress so as not to adversely affect that matter. After dinner, the Virginians were escorted to the home of Dr. William Shippen, brother-in-law of Richard Henry Lee. Lee had arrived earlier from Virginia, along with Peyton Randolph, Benjamin Harrison, and Richard Bland. The Congress was to have opened on Thursday, September 1st, but with the late arrival of many delegates, especially these Virginians, they had to postpone. They hoped enough representatives would be present by tomorrow, September 5th. Richard met Patrick at the door with an enthusiastic handshake and a broad smile. Welcome to Philadelphia. He quickly gave them the news of the men they had already met, including the famous Boston men, John and Sam Adams, who instantly took a liking to the Virginians. Letters of encouragement and support had arrived for the delegates, and before they turned in for the night, Richard handed Patrick a letter from Colonel Adam Stephen from Virginia. Colonel Stephen had served as second-in-command under George Washington in the French and Indian War, and now headed up Lord Dunmore's Northern Army. Colonel Stephen had long corresponded with Richard Henry Lee about the frontier ever since the French and Indian War. A gentleman wearing a striking red cloak delivered Colonel Stephen's letter to me here in Philadelphia, as it had arrived after I left Virginia, Richard explained. He said he hoped you would also read it before the convention. He also said to tell you he will host a dinner soon and welcomes us to be his guests. Mr. Gilliman was his name, I believe. Patrick's eyes widened with surprised delight as he took the letter. Mr. Gilliman? He's here? In Philadelphia? Yes, he's quite the distinguished gentleman, I might add. And he spoke highly of you, Richard answered with a smile and a hand on Patrick's shoulder. Good night, Pat. Sleep well. We have a big day tomorrow. Good night, Richard. Yes, we do, Patrick answered. He closed the bedroom door, kicked off his shoes, and sat on the edge of the bed, tossing his wig on the nightstand. He smiled to think of his old friend, Mr. Gilliman, who still took an interest in him. He couldn't wait to see the older gentleman here in Philadelphia. Patrick unfolded the letter and held it up to read by the light of the small candle. He nodded as he read Colonel Stevens's words, which encouraged the colonies to prepare militarily. Lord Dunmore orders me to the Ohio with his lordship to endeavor to put matters on a footing to establish a lasting peace with the brave natives. This prevents my attending the General Congress. The fate of America depends upon your meeting, and the eyes of the European world hang upon you waiting the event. Let us be provided with arms and ammunition, and individuals may suffer, but the gates of hell cannot prevail against America. Patrick then reread one sentence that gripped his heart. The fate of America depends upon your meeting, and the eyes of the European world hang upon you, waiting the event. Patrick furrowed his brow with the weight of that sentence. The fate of America, he said to himself, not just Virginia, America, not just one colony, one nation. May God guide our steps. The exhausted patriot set the letter down, blew out his candle, and quickly fell asleep. 
One nation under God, my good fellow, Nigel muttered from the shadows, there to confirm that Patrick had read the letter, which he would report back to Gilliman. It is time for the next part of the fiddle's riddle to unfold, a voice unified. The fate of America indeed depends upon this meeting. Philadelphia, September 5th, 1774, 10 a.m. Huzzah! We count 45 delegates present. We have a quorum. We can finally open the Congress. The men cheered in the club rooms of the city tavern. Several more delegates were due to arrive, but there were enough present to begin proceedings. Together they walked outside and excitedly marched two blocks up the street over Dock Creek Bridge, took a left onto narrow Whalebone Alley, and entered a beautiful courtyard. There before them was a two-story brick building in the shape of a cross called Carpenter's Hall. Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Richard Henry Lee exchanged expectant smiles and ascended the stone steps into the newly completed building. Carpenter's Hall was owned by the Carpenter's Company of Philadelphia, the oldest craft guild in the colonies. Founded in 1724, in the tradition of the Worshipful Company of Carpenters in London, the guild was made up of carpenters, bricklayers, masons, painters, and other artisans. When construction of a house was contracted for, it was the carpenter who oversaw every step of the process, from design to construction to completion. The master carpenter was the force behind building something from nothing. He was the master builder. The Carpenters Company of Philadelphia was made up of the cream of the crop of immigrants who had come to America to build a new world. They weren't bewigged aristocrats, but neither were they street rabble. They represented the common people, the backbone of America. These artisans had built the Pennsylvania State House, Christ Church, St. Peter's Church, and now Carpenter's Hall. Benjamin Franklin's library company found its home on the second floor in this newly constructed building, which thereby was housing the first library in America. The hall was intended as meeting space for the guild, as a place to conduct business, and as a source of rental income. Robert Smith, who designed the building, had also coincidentally designed America's first insane asylum in Williamsburg, where Patrick Henry had visited when he was exploring options for a way to care for Sally. Smith served on the Philadelphia Committee of Correspondence. He had offered up the hall as the meeting place for the First Continental Congress after a certain Mr. Gilliman paid him a visit with the idea of using the hall as neutral ground for the delegates. Rather than meet in the Pennsylvania State House, the seat of government of the host colony, owned by Great Britain, and heavily guarded by conservatives loyal to the crown, the delegates could meet and freely discuss their ideas on neutral ground in a privately owned meeting room in Carpenter's Hall. While Smith's work in Williamsburg did not meet Patrick's personal needs for Sally, it perfectly met Patrick's professional needs in Philadelphia for the Congress. Here, conservatives like Joseph Galloway from Philadelphia and John Jay and James Duane of New York could meet on a level playing field with radicals such as John and Sam Adams, Patrick Henry, and Richard Henry Lee. Here they could seek unity in the midst of their differences. 
Robert Smith proudly opened the doors to the large 20-by-30-foot east room. The delegates entered to the smell of fresh paint and the gleaming heart-pine floors. Sturdy Windsor chairs awaited them in a semicircle. The clean fireplace would not be needed in the sweltering heat of this September morning, but everything else was perfect. Nigel awaited them from the rafters of the library, pleased with this clever choice of meeting space. Carpenter's Hall had been secured by John Adams and Richard Henry Lee before the delegates had all arrived in Philadelphia. Bravo, Gilliman, there could be no more appropriate place for the master carpenter to build a new nation. The first order of business was to elect Peyton Randolph as president of the Congress and Charles Thompson as secretary. After hearing the commissions read by each colony's delegation, there arose a problem that started the first debate in Congress. How would they vote? By a majority rule? What about the differing population sizes of the colonies? This question could already undermine their unified beginning. Conservative James Duane and radical John Adams were already debating the answer, but soon the room grew uncomfortable. Everyone looked around in silence until, finally, Patrick Henry took the floor. Patrick was wearing a dark gray suit and a plain, unpowdered brown wig. With his characteristic stoop and grave appearance, he looked more like a humble parson than the fiery orator from Virginia. Charles Thompson looked him over from his secretarial seat, not knowing who he was. He must be some Presbyterian clergyman used to haranguing the people. How sad that a country parson should so mistake his talents and audience. As usual, Patrick started off slowly with a humble voice. But soon his eloquence rolled off his tongue, and members began to turn to each other asking, Who is it? Who is it? Patrick Henry soon made his identity unmistakable. We are met here in a time and on an occasion of great difficulty and distress, Patrick began. Our public circumstances are like those of a man in deep embarrassment and trouble, who calls his friends together to devise what is best to be done for his relief. One would propose one thing and another a different one, while perhaps a third would think of something better suited to his unhappy circumstances. This he would embrace and think no more of the rejected schemes with which he would have nothing to do. This is the first general congress which has ever happened. No former congress can be a precedent. I submit that we will have occasion for more general congresses, therefore a precedent should be established now, Patrick suggested. It would be a great injustice if a little colony should have the same weight in the councils of America as a great one. New Hampshire delegate John Sullivan quickly rose to his feet. A little colony has its all at stake, as well as a great one. Immediately the assembly began debating the issue. Patrick Henry took his seat after suggesting that a committee devise a plan for fair and equal representation. Nigel raised his eyebrows as he stared at Patrick's furrowed brow and pensive state as the debate continued throughout the afternoon, with no answer in sight. I say, it appears the master orator has been given pause to think this through a bit more before his is truly a voice unified. 
Carpenter's Hall, Philadelphia, September 6, 1774. The Congress convened again at 10 a.m. and picked up where they had left off the previous day. It wasn't long before Patrick Henry once again took the floor. He had indeed thought how to better clarify what was needed in this First Continental Congress. By the oppression of Parliament, all government is dissolved. Fleets and armies and the present state of things show that government is dissolved, Patrick Henry declared, drawing surprised looks from the assembly. Where are your landmarks, your boundaries of colonies? We are in a state of nature, sir. I do propose a scale should be laid down. That part of North America which was once Massachusetts Bay, and that part which was once Virginia, ought to be considered as having a weight. Will not people complain? Ten thousand Virginians have not outweighed one thousand others. I will submit, however. I am determined to submit, if I am overruled. Patrick looked around the assembly room and walked calmly a few steps glancing at John Sullivan. A worthy gentleman near me seems to admit the necessity of obtaining a more adequate representation. He walked a few more paces and locked eyes with Richard Henry Lee, who gave him an affirming nod. He lifted his chin and slowly, quietly clapped his hands. I hope future ages will quote our proceedings with applause. It is one of the great duties of the democratical part of the Constitution to keep itself pure. It is known in my province that some other colonies are not so numerous or rich as they are. I am for giving all the satisfaction in my power. Patrick's voice began to rise in its urgency, causing the assembly to hang on every word. The distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. He paused and raised a fist of unity and victory in the air, and exclaimed loudly and proudly, I am not a Virginian, but an American. Hear, hear! John Adams exclaimed, pounding his fist on the table in approval, along with other members of the Congress who agreed with Patrick. He marveled at what he had just heard. Patrick Henry is the only man in this Congress who appears to understand the precipice on which we stand and he has the candor and courage enough to acknowledge it. I will have to write Abigail about this insightful man. Richard Henry Lee quickly raised a practical question of whether Congress was even capable of knowing the importance of each colony. There were no exact facts and figures on population, after all. After a bit more debate, it was finally decided that each colony would have one singular vote in this First Continental Congress. But all the delegates agreed that this voting method would not be locked in as the precedent for future sessions, as circumstances might dictate a better way to ensure fairness. A voice unified at last, stated Nigel, preening his whiskers proudly. He breathed a deep sigh of satisfaction, but was then startled as he heard loud voices shouting outside. Suddenly the doors to the meeting room burst open, and an unknown messenger exclaimed, Boston has been attacked! The city was shelled by the British Navy! Quickly the messenger left the hall as the assembly got to their feet. 
the Massachusetts men rushed out to the streets, eager to confirm the story and get more information of what was happening back home. Patrick Henry and the rest of the Congress filed out onto the streets after them. War! 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 The people cried as they ran down the streets. The delegates looked at one another in alarm. But from the shadows, a sinister pair of eyes filled with delight. Ooh, that were intriguing. We, oui, sinister eyes filled with delight. There is trouble afoot, and it seems that trouble is not just coming from the British. But I did enjoy the, uh, hero's welcome, as it were, that the delegates received as they first arrived in Philadelphia. And I found it fascinating to hear Mon Henry and George Washington conversing about, uh, starting wars. Aye, it's a real treat that all those great men knew each other and had great conversations like that. Or did they? Was that an actual conversation? Or did all that stem from the creative mind of our author extraordinaire, Jenny L. Cody? Well, there is only one way to find out. It is time for Jenny's Corner. Hello, Miss Jenny. Hey, everybody. What are you curious about? Uh, Madame, today we are curious about all the conversations that take place in your books. After all, this is an historical account, no? So, uh... You may have noticed that I put a lot of words into the mouths of our founding fathers, like Patrick Henry and George Washington. And you might wonder, where do I get their dialogue from? Exactement. Some of it is, of course, actual recorded history. Wherever I can use the actual words that we know that they said, and this is either something written down in a journal at one of the official meeting of the Burgesses or of Congress, or it's an eyewitness account, someone who was there and heard what they said, or sometimes it is in a letter that they would write, and we know what their thought process was. If you write something in a letter, or you have a conversation with a friend, and it's something that is very important that you're passionate about, more than likely you'll say those same words to someone else in another conversation. And so many times I pick up dialogue of things that George Washington or Patrick Henry wrote in their correspondence, but used it in conversation. Now, for this particular chapter, A Voice Unified, you've got George Washington and Patrick Henry riding together to Philadelphia, and this fun little conversation of Patrick Henry suggesting that they're in this exclusive club (laughs) of starting wars, that's all me. (laughs) And this is something that I just kind of observed, I said, well, technically, if George Washington started the French and Indian War, which grew to the Seven Years' War by accident, again, it was not intentional, and then you've got Patrick Henry setting the ball of the revolution rolling by being the first one to defy tyranny way back in 1765 with the Stamp Act, and even before that with the Parsons Cause. 1763. Well, technically, he got the ball of the revolution rolling, according to Jefferson. So it was just a fun little chance to see, gee, I wonder if they ever had a conversation like that. But that was all me. So sometimes you're going to get some fiction that's just plausible, though. Again, if I put words into their mouths that they did not say, 
It's got to be plausible. It's got to be true to their character. It's got to be true to the events surrounding them. And it's got to reflect well on who I believed them to be. I say fascinating, Miss Jenny, and a great lesson to any would-be writer. For if you intend for a character from history to sound authentic, you'd better do your homework and find some of their writings and quotes from which to work. Well, well done as always, Miss Jenny. Oui, madame. Uh, Max, uh, are you okay? You seem to be a bit distracted. Hi, lassie. I keep thinking about a nonser lad saying his grandparents came over to America from Northern Ireland in the 1920s. So? So? Were his ancestors British citizens? And if so, were they part of the British army? Were they fighting against America then? Well, old chap, I fear you may be oversimplifying the whole situation just a tad. Uh, we, uh, so much like Miss Jenny does, why don't we go to the source, eh? Uh, Monsieur Valenza? Uh, once again, it's, uh, Denny. <laughs> I say, Denny, huh? Is that your formal name? Well, no, it's, it's Dennis. Dennis Michael. Uh, Dennis Michael, huh? Well, no, that sure has an Irish ring to it. Well, you got me there, Max. My parents indeed wanted my name to sound a, a wee bit Irish. I say, that indeed muddies the water uh, regarding his ancestors' loyalty to the British crown, for it seems as England's first colony, so to speak, Ireland, uh, was uh, quite sympathetic to the American cause as they too were often politically subdued by the British Parliament. By the same token... The northern, more Protestant region of Ireland, which is uh, uh, Denny's heritage, has always been the region of Ireland with the strongest loyalty to Great Britain. And let me muddy the waters even further. My grandparents were indeed Protestant. My granddad played the bagpipes, wore kilts, and even joined a society of British loyalists at the age of 12. Aha! So your family were rooting for the Redcoats, eh? Careful, Max. That is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, because it gets even muddier. At the closest point, you know, Northern Ireland and Scotland are only about 10 miles apart. In fact, on a clear day, uh, which is pretty rare in Ireland, you can even see Scotland from the Irish coast. So yeah, there's a lot of cultural crossover there, like bagpipes and kilts. And as my brother discovered recently doing an ancestry search... Our last name, Brownlee, is more than likely Scottish. It could be that my ancestors sailed from Scotland over to Northern Ireland sometime after 1776. So in reality, I may be more Scottish than Irish. Huzzah! I say, this is the best news I've heard all day. <laughs> that means a nouncer chap may have the most in common, not with me or with Al, but with Max. Oh, no, hold on there, Moosey. I protest. If you protest, does that make you Protestant? <laughs> like Monsieur Announcer? <laughs> uh, the name is Denny. Indeed, but your surname is squarely from the Highlands of Scotland. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> you don't know that for sure now. Well, one thing we do know for sure. Monsieur's heritage has no mention of France. <laughs> C'est magnifique. Aye, uh, Scotland forever. I'm X. Oh, no. No, I'm the one feeling a wee bit woozy. And I'm feeling the love. Uh, so, uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week. Scottish, Irish, American, whatever I am. Indeed, monsieur, whatever you are, you are just not French. Très bien! 
Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi, a biento, mes amis, huzzah, and ta-ta. And always remember, you are loved and you are able. And Scotland forever.